Hello and welcome to Tell Don't Show, the show and tell podcast where we tell you about something because we can't show you. So we just sit here and do a big ol' info dump on you. I'm Kate. I'm Ryan. And I'm really fucking tired. Let's get to the show! As long as people have been around, they've sought ways to entertain themselves. Even thousands of years ago, when daily survival was far from guaranteed, people still, for lack of a better term, dicked about. The oldest toy, a spinning top, was dated to 6,000 years ago. The spinning tops seem incredibly advanced compared to just hitting one another with sticks. Which I assume, you know, if we do that now, they did that then. I mean, it's still a game to put fucking pieces of a tree on string and twat them until someone else's breaks, because that's what Conkers is, and we still play that. Exactly. Yeah, and also, you know, if wild animals can play, fight, and chase one another, then early people, why not? Yeah. Yeah, humans are far more intelligent than all of the creatures. And as such, our methods of play were sure to develop beyond just twatting one another. As mentioned, the oldest toy of spinning top is thousands of years old, and there are countless examples of dolls, balls, hoops, and so forth since then. However, I'm a big fucking nerd. I love board games, I love role-playing games, and I love war games. Six hurt my bones in a way that dice don't, and numbers and little figures and speaking in silly voices... You know, all, all of those are similarly ancient. Mm-hmm. As a side note, the first recorded piece of fiction, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is dated to the 3rd millennium BCE. So what that's a pretty lit. fucking name. Yeah. That sounds like the bad guy from Smurfs. Gargamel. Gargamel, yeah. Huh. I was Any- quite proud of myself for remembering that pretty quick. Yeah. Sounds like if Gargamel and Doofenshmirtz had a child. Smurf that guy. If Gargamel smurfed Doofenshmirtz. That's a real smurf. Anyways... <laughs> I decided to look into some of the oldest known examples of board games, war games, and tabletop role-playing games, mm-hmm. just as a little, a fun little exercise. So let's begin with board games, because there's a there's a through line, a sort mm-hmm. of evolution between them all. So one of the most well-known ancient board games actually comes from the same place as the oldest spinning top, Egypt. So uh, this oldest game was called Senet, S-E-N-E-T. Yep, it means passing or afternoon in Coptic. It was a game whose earliest representation has been dated to 2620 BCE in the great necropolis of Saqqara, specifically the Mashtaba of Hesi Rey, the world's oldest dentist. That's just, that's just a little fun fact there. Hmm. However, similar boards and hieroglyphs have been found to have been created even earlier than this, and there's like a 2,000 year history at least of Senate boards. Fragmented Senate boards were found dated back to 3100 BCE amongst the tombs of the first dynasty of Egypt. Yeah, people are not depicted playing this game until 2500 BCE, amongst the tombs of the 5th and 6th dynasties, and the first fully intact board for Senate is dated to around 2000 BC. So that's already over a thousand years of history there. I'm a dumb fuck, I keep forgetting which ones. Isn't it BC is like... Before the year zero. So it goes, the smaller the number, the more recent it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Sorry, my... Like I said at the beginning of this episode, I've been working my ass off. I am so tired. Yeah, don't worry. Uh, writing this BC also fucks me up. Okay, <laughs> so, cool. so supposedly during the New Kingdom of Egypt in 1550 to 1077 BCE, mm-hmm. Senate was by this time not just a board game. It was perceived as a representation of the journey of the car to the afterlife, your soul. That's why I've heard of it then. Mm-hmm. Because I really like the story of the afterlife. Because yeah. ancient Egypt is one of my favourite things. Exactly. So this is attested to by something called the Great Game Text, which sounds like a holy relic for capital G gamers. And it sounds like that sounds like like the first Warhammer rulebook. Yeah, it, the Great Game Text. It sounds like something out of fucking Yu-Gi-Oh, because Yu-Gi-Oh <laughs> has like the Egyptian god cards. Oh god! Oh, that was great. Anyway, not just the Great Game Text, but this is also also attested to by the religious iconography found on the intact Senate boards themselves. And Senate is even referred to in the Book of the Dead, the holy scripture from which passages are inked into the bandages of mummies. So it's highly possible that there's some gamer mummies out there with little board games drawn on them, or at least descriptions of board games on them. Take your d20. If you roll it when trying to cross the River of Souls, you die. I don't actually think... You've got to roll exactly a 10, otherwise your soul is unbalanced. I know, I know, I know for a fact, well at least I presume, I don't think that... Um, ancient Egypt had a river of souls in their way of the dead mythology. I know Greece did, but it just sounded kind of passage of death. Yes. Esque. Anyway, what is Senate as a game? We don't really know. Some of the rules have been deciphered. <laughs> End of episode. Yep, that's it. Uh, some of the rules have been deciphered and is generally considered to still be a mystery. At least the original form of it. I can describe the board. I've got a little um, visual aid here. 
for you in particular because you're bad at imagining things. Yeah, I um, I am extraordinarily bad at imagining things. I was doing a therapy thing the other day and it said, imagine what you look like. And I, I can't see it. Literally, I can see nothing. I don't, I can't really see that. I can't see where my dad's trying to give me directions. I can't see it. So yeah, yeah I get visual aids. You guys can just cope. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> or Google it. Yeah, you can always Google it. That's a lot easier. Anyway, so this board is um, a cuboid box with a pull-out drawer on the short face of it, where you keep all the pieces. Mm -hmm. The pieces themselves are little, um, sort of like thimble-sized things, shall we say. On the top long side of this box, there is a grid of squares, 3 by 10, so 30 squares in total. Those are the game tiles, and you can see the visual right, thank aid. Thank you, I was suffering. Oh, that's a very nice colour. The it is. one it's like that a nice I'm being... sort of turquoise, not turquoise. Um, what's that called? Macrag blue. It's macrag blue with a lovely athematic blue wash over top. Oh, I will say it is though. <laughs> it's I think it is. Yeah, it is athematic blue. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a deep it's, blue. It's not a wooden. It's not deep. It's turquoisey. It's not a wooden box. It, it looks more like a kind of stone kind of yeah. box with some inscriptions. It's some sort of mineral. It's very pretty. I like it. Anyway. Each side is believed to have five pawn tokens, which were likely arranged on the tiles prior to the game start, or slightly off the board. Uh, the two tiles in the opposing corners, you see there and there, mm -hmm. those would be like your base tiles, where you'd start okay. your, uh, your pieces. So that's on the player's left? Yes, on the player's left, if you're on the short side. Yes. Those were marked with a single tally mark, and then going up your left side, you have two tally marks, three tally marks, and then two separate symbols. Okay. The tile in the exact centre of the board is also marked in the same way as those fourth and fifth tiles. Beyond this, we have no real definitive clue as to how the game is played, because there's these two historians, Timothy Kendall and R.C. Bell. They've reconstructed R.C. Bell. <laughs> yeah, I was laughing at R.C. Bell because he sounds like, like a right R.C. fella. Oh dear. So they've <laughs> reconstructed the rules themselves, <laughs> I know. Uh, but they did so using a wide variety of texts that spanned the course of a millennia. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's going to be a subject to change. A couple rules changes. Yeah. Between, look how much chess has changed, and that's been around for like 1,500 years. Yeah, like, chess has changed, man. Like, so much. Chess has changed so much. You know, um, they didn't used to have a queen. They didn't have a queen until the 1500s. Misogynistic pricks. Yes, it was the vizier, who uh, was basically the exact same as a king, in that they can only move one tile. Kind of like a viceroy vizier. Yes. Hey! But yeah. I'm so, not as dumb as I look. Like, imagine if you had, you know, the Viceroy piece and also, like, the en passant rule in chess. It's fairly, I think, the most recent chess rule? I don't know. I don't know that much chess. I just know en passant. <laughs> I don't know what en passant means. I thought Doesn't that, matter. I thought that was a piece of punctuation. That's an ampersand. That's an ampersand, yeah. Same fucking thing. We're not here to look at chess, though. We're here to look at some. We're here to look at the rules developed by Bell and Kendall. They've been adopted by. Pretty much every single modern Senate set being sold on the market today. We know that Senate was a game of position strategy and a little bit of luck, and it seems that players navigated the 30 tiles from their side of the board up and then down the middle and then up towards the enemy side. Oh, okay. So it was like, like a Norwegian road then. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, you could move any of your pieces in any order you wish and have any number of them on the board at any time you want. The amount a piece could move was determined by casting four split twigs that had one half of it light from the innards of the twig and the other half dark. Mm -hmm. And uh, for every pale twig, you would be able to move one space. So it was basically a weird way of doing 1d4. Yeah, because then... Oh, so if, it were, if you got, like, two pale, you could move two places. Yeah. Or would it be if you got two pale and two dark, you could only... No, if you got two pale, you can move two places. So it was just the pale that yeah, you'd go it was off. a one and a zero. It was binary uh, okay. it was described as. Right. I think there were some rules that if you got four pale, you could then roll another one. So it was a minimum of four, up to five or something. Mm -hmm. If you land one of your pieces onto an opponent's piece, then those pieces swap places, which seems like a bad thing more than anything, but it's a game of strategies. There you go. So the 26th space is required to be landed on by every single piece. The 27th space, you're not allowed to land in, otherwise you get sent back to the middle of the board. And then those last three spaces with the one tally, the two tally, and the three tally, Mm. those represent what you'd have to roll if you are on that space in order to get a piece off the board. 
Okay. Oh, so your aim is to get all of your pieces off the other your, side? Yeah, off the right. enemy side. I believe there's a rule that you don't have to have all of your pieces on the board, but none of your pieces can overtake. Okay. Uh, that's about the rules of Senate. It's incredibly interesting to many, given that its original rules are still technically a complete mystery. And, you know, even specific rules from certain periods are a misrule. Mm. Uh, we have snippets of several rule sets enough to piece together an amalgamation of all well, these seven editions of the game. It's like, you know, if we were playing 40k using second edition rules, like fourth edition rules, seventh edition rules, and new ninth editions at the same time. Yeah, it'd be a bit of a clusterfuck. Absolute clusterfuck, yeah. I mean, probably still enough to play a game, as it isn't with Senate. Yeah, but, but like not enough to like enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> but not enough to say definitively this is the game. Yeah. Yeah. This is far from the only board game to have been found in Egypt and the surrounding areas. So a similar game to Senate is known as the Game of 20 Squares, or Aseb. In fact, this game is so intertwined with Senate that many of the existing boards for Aseb are found on the opposite side of the box to Senate boards. <laughs> However, it is far further reaching than Senate ever was, with Aseb boards having been found in Sudan, Crete, and India. That is pretty cool. Senate boards were found in, like, Crete and around Lebanon, or the Levant. I'm surprised that none, just because of how integrated trade routes were, I'm surprised that there weren't any found in... Like, China and such. I was going to say Greece and well, Italy. Yeah, it is surprising. But So Aseb is younger than Senate, with it perhaps originating from anywhere between 1500 and 300 BCE. Mm-hmm. It is estimated to have originated from ancient Sumeria. Yeah. However, it is no more understood than Senate. The original rules remain a mystery, and they are only partially reconstructed or reimagined from a variety of historians. AncientGames.com has a rule set for Aseb, based off of reconstruction work done by the Russian games historian Dmitry Skiryuk. But similar to Senate, this is likely far from the original rules. So I'm going to give you a visual aid. It looks like a fly swatter. I thought you were going to say a penis, so that's... No, a penis is round. <laughs> Fair enough. It, it looks like either an old-timey waffle iron or a fly swatter. Yes. So the asset board consists of a 3 by 4 grid of squares, and then there's an arm of eight tiles protruding from the centre of one of the short edges of the grid. Yes. So, like, the handle for the head of the fly swatter. Let, let's make it vegan. Let's go for waffle maker. Yeah, okay. So, the game starts with all of the pieces off of the board, and they're lined up adjacent to each of the shorter rows of tiles. Similarly to Senate, this game is a race to reach the end of the board by first navigating along your four safe tiles on your side of the board, mm-hmm. and then going all the way down the central arm to reach the end. Okay. It has the same rules as Senate, where when you get to the very end, you have to roll... A certain number. N plus one in order to get off. It has similar rules regarding taking other pieces, except instead of swapping places, you just completely knock them off the board and they get sent back off the board. And they have to restart yeah. it again. Okay. Whenever you roll a one or higher, you can choose to either move one of your pieces on the board or take one of your pieces from the reserve, shall we say. Okay. No piece may move beyond your leading piece. I think this is where that rule's from. I don't know if it was originally in Senate. It's no wonder that Aseb and Senate were included on the same reversible board, because they are remarkably similar games, using the same amount of pieces and somewhat similar rules. Mm. Perhaps they were also so similar because of their shared heritage with what is actually the oldest board game known to history, called, uh, delightfully, the Royal Game of Ur. Wasn't that a League of Legends? Oh, it was Earth. <laughs> yes, it's the Royal Game of Earth. Ultra rapid fire mode. Oh dear. I thought Earth was a ma- manatee. Yes, Earth was a manatee who was going to join the League of Legends and was then murdered by the werewolf who wore his skin. And then he was reincarnated as a god later, as the god of the ultra-rapid-fire mode. Aww. There's some League of Legends lore for you. Yeah. Oh, he, has a, he has an absolutely fucking baller theme song. I'm just going to play that. Okay. So, uh. Yeah, we've just listened to the Earth theme song. It's, it's a fucking banger. Anyway, the Royal Game of Earth. Uh Fuck. <laughs> I broke you. So the Royal Game of Ur, it's not the oldest board game ever, as several others supposedly predate it by at least 100-200 years, these ones being from India. But unlike those games, and indeed unlike Senate and Aseb, this game is completely playable using its original rules. Ooh! Yeah, it's fucking dope. This is because, unlike its descendants Senate and Ur, it remained a popular game up until even the 5th and 6th centuries CE. What's CE stand for? CE is Common Era. It's a uh, non-religious interpretation. What the fuck did AD stand for? Anno Domini, Year of Our Lord. I'm a dumb motherfucker. I thought it stood for After Death. 
Because I thought like year zero was when Jesus apparently pegged it. Yeah, it's one of those um, sort of backwards etymologies. Oh. Anyway, this is because, unlike its descendants Senate and Ur, it remained a popular game even until the 5th and 6th century CE, when it likely evolved into a descendant of modern race tables games, and potentially even backgammon, which is peculiar. Hmm. So, we'll get to that. So the game was forgotten in its original form everywhere on Earth, except for amongst the small Jewish population of the Indian city Kochi, where the game was known as Ashar until the 1950s when they emigrated to the newly founded Israel, which is such a peculiar little link. Yeah, well, it's kind of like the link between Borscht and Hong Kong. Yeah, just weird stuff like that, or how um, Norway introduced salmon to salmon Japan. To Japan. Yeah. yeah. The Royal Game of Ur was so named because of its discovery amongst Sir Leonard Woolley's excavations of the Royal Cemetery of Ur in 1922. Where something got on his hand and he went, Ew! That's a really dumb joke. No, you know what he probably got on his hand? He probably got on his hand some really shitty copper. Because it's the same expedition which discovered the complaints tablet regarding Ionesia's shitty copper. Cool! We yeah. did an episode on that! Yeah. So the original rules for this game, or at least the rules that were in use during the 2nd century BCE, were also preserved on a Babylonian clay tablet, which he found. Using the tablet, written of course in cuneiform, and the five boards recovered, slash stolen by Woolley. Yeah, stolen. Yeah. The current curator of the British Museum, Irving Finkel, reconstructed the rules of the game. He did that in 1980. So it's very Shit. fucking recent. Yeah, it's quite recent. Like, so recent, he's still the curator today. Ah. Oh. So yeah, guess what? This game is pretty much the same as Senna and Aseb. <laughs> No surprise that four boards for this game were discovered in Tutankhamun's tomb, and like I said, the boards, there were also Senate boards on the reverse side of the box. <laughs> so, despite the name of the game as we know it today, there is evidence that this game was actually enjoyed by people of all social classes, as a graffitied version of the game board has been found carved into one of the Lamassu statues protecting the tomb of Sargon II, king of the Neo Assyrian Empire in the 7th century BCE. So, the people making his tomb just got bored. And just was like, the, oh, fuck it, do you want to have a quick game? Either the people making his tomb got bored, or people robbing his tomb got bored, or people guarding his tomb got bored. Or people who just so happen to live near. Yeah. So, and keep in mind, these are like divine protector statues from what I gathered. <laughs> so they're just like, Or the eh, divine protectors it. got bored. Yeah. Although it's probably not as blasphemous as it seems, because much like Senate, this game bore spiritual significance, or at least it acquired such significance in its thousands of years of play. The rules tablet of Urs provided vague fortunes for the players should they land on certain tiles, such as, you will find a friend, or you will draw a fine beer. Supposedly landing on certain spaces in certain orders was also seen as methods of divining your fate, as the random throws of the dice, because this game actually used dice, uh, as a a 4d4 method, where two of the sides of their d4 were marked with a 1, and the others were blank. Okay. So it was, again, binary lots. Yeah, still binary. Yeah. They were seen as messages from the gods, deceased ancestors, or even the speech of your own soul. So it's not just having a dick about, it's also a fortune-telling device. So having a dick about. Well, yes, but... <laughs> so a study conducted in 2013 of over 100 extant urboards determined that the game's tiles varied wildly in the amount of tiles and what these tiles represented over its history and through its propagation throughout the ancient world, including picking up incredible innovations in the Levant and Egypt, such as more squares. How many more squares? We don't know for certain. Shit. I think it's the knobs at the end. Okay. So the rules reconstructed in the 80s are almost a precise recreation of the game as it was played at least between the 5th and 2nd centuries BCE, because Finkel used two different rules tablets to decipher the rules to the game. Mm -hmm. Basically, the game is pretty much the same as Aseb. You start off with pieces off of the symmetrical board, with spaces that are safe on your side of the track, and places that are dangerous in the central shared part of the track. You roll to move pieces forwards or onto the track, removing an enemy piece if it's landed on it, and you need to roll N plus 1 to get a piece off the board. Yeah. The main differences with the Royal Game of Ur come from the shape of the board. So this game shares the same 3x4 tiled space as Aseb, with four spaces on each side acting as the starting areas, before pieces end up in what I call the danger zone. Danger zone! Danger zone! So this danger zone is eight tiles long in total, instead of Aseb's 12 tiles long in total. And instead of being a straight line to the end of the board, there are also four additional tiles at the end, two on each player's side of the board. Please tell me. Creating a little nub. Oh, that's quite sweet. That looks like a... It's like a spaceship. I was going to say it looks like a really shit sword. Yeah. <laughs> or like a shovel. It's a Minecraft shovel. It's a Minecraft trench shovel. Yeah. So you've got a 3x4 grid, and then 
a one by two connector and then a two by three grid on the other end. Where am I? So there are two possible rule sets for these tiles at the end. In one example of play, these are additional safe tiles at the end of the board and represent the end of a player's track. In which case you would go from that bit to the end in the middle through the danger zone and then curl back around the start. Okay. Uh, the other example of play is that you make your way up the danger zone and then you're expected to loop around, go through every single one of the end tiles and then loop all the way back to the very start of the danger zone, which counts as the end of the track. So as you're making your way to the end, you're also making your way to this bit where enemy pieces can immediately go and take you off the board. Yeah. Which, that just sounds way more fun to me personally. The other thing which makes this uh, even better, in my opinion, is that one discovered game board came with 21 white balls that are uh, estimated to be used for gambling on the games, somehow. So it came built in with a gambling mechanic at some point. Good. Everybody loves a bit of gambling. Yeah. There's also addition of, um, you see some of the rosettes and stuff. Yeah, making the board pretty. Not just making the board pretty. Oh, some of them are safe symbolized. spaces and some of them are second consecutive turns. Oh. So if you land on it, you get extra turn. Or if you land on it, you can't be taken by an enemy piece. Okay. And then a lot of the others either will be instructions on, you know, this means you'll get a, your crush will say your name and kiss you three times on the next Monday. Or whatever those weird chain mails were. Mm-hmm. Nobody is uh, quite sure why the game uh, fell out of popularity. It's possible that the game simply evolved, because some believe it evolved into backgammon, which is strange considering the spiritual aspect of the game of Earth, then going into backgammon, then going into chess and checkers and stuff like that. Um, I don't have any fucking idea what backgammon is. You know what? I don't think I've ever played backgammon. I've played checkers and chess. I have not really played checkers, and I still need to learn how to play chess. We need to play chess. I want to... We played laser chess. Um, And the other game that I have that's looks like it's kind of like chess and checkers is um viking i'm not familiar uh, give it a goggle later yeah <laughs> we're not here to talk about viking we're here to talk about a game that might have been played by viking oh yeah so even the longest surviving variant of this game that varies in several aspects such as having 12 pieces instead of seven but still that survived until the 1950s at least which is remarkable that's like a 4,000, 5,000 year history of some variant of the game of Ur being played. Wait, do you say 1500s? No, 3500 BCE to 1950. So over 5,000 years. That's like at least two years, my dude. That's like at least 100 years. Yeah. That's crazy. But yeah, that's three little um, board games, Mm -hmm. which moves us on to the history of wargaming. So it's not quite as long as that of general board gaming, as you might expect, but... I think briefly I should discuss what a war game is for people who are less familiar with it as a genre. So a war game is a game played by two or more people, but usually just two people, where the gameplay simulates warfare of a given kind and at a certain scale. If a game has pieces that represent military units and the aim of the game is to defeat the opponent's pieces, then it's a war game. Today the biggest war games are those produced by Games Workshop, such as Warhammer 40k and Age of Sigmar. There are countless others available from Star Wars war games, focusing on infantry and space battles like Legion or X-Wing, to big property war games such as Middle-Earth and A Song of Ice and Fire war games, to historical war games like Bolt Action, or smaller scale skirmish games which focus on a lot less, you know, models on the board, like a Malifaux or Kill Team or Battletech. Uh, in each game, players control a certain number of pieces, typically called models, and take turns having those models beat the shit out of one another, typically through dice rolls and very, very lengthy rulebooks. So, Games Workshop has been the sort of big name in wargaming since the 80s, but they were far from the first names in the game. In fact, the history of wargaming begins in 1780, when a Prussian mathematician named Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig, which is a very German name, yes, created the first ever Kriegspiel. Which is a very German name. Also known as, and apologies to our German listeners, of which there's apparently a couple. Oh, um, sick. <clears throat> sorry once again. Versuch eines aufs Schachspiel gebauten taktischen Spiels von zwei und mereren Personen zu spielen. Bless you. Otherwise known in English as Attempt to build upon chess, a tactical game which two or more persons might play. Which is not the catchiest name in the world. No, that's quite a... That's... Yeah, no, what, in German was that all one word? No. Oh, good. I was, I, no, I know, it's not quite that bad. <laughs> no, I know German... I know the German language does like their... They've got silly compound words. Compound words. I say but silly, I was like, practical. Yeah, compound words are pretty good, but like I didn't... I didn't know how far they'd take it. 
I tell you what, I'd hate to be a German student trying to go for a word count. Oh, fuck yeah. Anyway, so as the ever so catchy name suggests, this was an attempt to turn chess, a staple of teaching strategy and tactics for around a thousand years at this point, into something more realistic. You know, realistic enough to teach useful, practical lessons to trainee officers, because he was a, uh, a maths professor, mm. and many of the people he would teach would go on to be military officers. Yeah. So the game board was expanded from a typical chessboard to being 49 by 33 squares large, with different coloured squares representing different terrains, such as mountains, swamps, rivers, and so forth. What's interesting is that these coloured squares are actually inter- interchangeable and customizable, ah. which is pretty fun. Yeah. Rather than capturing the enemy king, you had to take enemy fortress. When setting up your pieces, which were special pieces mimicking military units of the time, not just reused chess pieces, you could set up with a, uh, a screen across the board to sort of simulate the fog of war so that you couldn't see what the other army was deploying. Cool. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty fun. Like in Battleship, but exactly. that screen never goes away. Yeah. Uh, units also moved at different speeds and could shoot at one another from certain ranges. And so you've got your artillery and, and your exactly. cavalry. Yeah, yeah. Commercially, this was a very, very successful game, uh, to the point that several imitators were also released in the decades afterwards. All of them grid-based. Uh, one had rules governing logistics and supply convoys and mobile bakeries and weather and seasons and so forth, which... Mobile bakeries. I really hope that the seasons impacted the bakeries. Oh, God, same. The loaf proving time during the winter will be longer. During the summer, it won't be. Unfortunately, your bakeries run at half uh, efficiency during the winter because you can't get enough grain from the silos. <laughs> the other sort of big imitator introduced dice to simulate the randomness of warfare, which seems normal to you and me. It was very, very controversial at the time. In fact, Helvig himself thought that introducing randomness made it useless as an instructional tool and ruined the fun of the tactical element of the game. Because... Well, it's because you don't really want to admit that warfare can have an aspect of randomness to it, isn't it, as well? I suppose, yeah. I know what you're talking about. My men hit all the time. Yeah, did the bollocks. However, Helvig neglected to pay attention to the fact that these games were never taken seriously by the militaries of the time. Yep. Although they were great fun, apparently. Uh, they believe that the attempts at realism on a grid-based board were somewhat moot. Real-life units don't take up a square mile of, yeah. of space by themselves. They can move within you know, meters of each other. Rivers aren't arranged in blocky sort of protrusions. Yeah, all, all of these little things made it not quite so good for teaching that. And if you want to abstract things, why not just be really abstract and go with chess? Yeah, that's true. So regardless of this, the idea of using war games of this nature to teach military tactics stuck around in Prussia. In 1824, which is 21 years after Helwig's final edition of his game, Kriegspiel was presented to the Prussian general staff by officer... Oh god, I forgot how long this name was. George Heinrich Rudolf Johann von Reiswitz. Kriegspiel sounds like it's like it means war speak. Yeah, because you're going on a long spiel about some of it. Yeah. But obviously spiel just means game. So literally it's just war game. It's where the whole genre's name comes from. Of course it's war game, because... Yeah. Is war, yeah. Anyway, so this was presented by Reiswitz as a highly realistic war game that he developed alongside his father. It eschewed the grid-based conventions of Helwig and his imitators in place of using one to 8,000 scale paper maps, such as those utilised by the actual Prussian army itself. The pieces were little rectangular lead blocks, each marked in a specific manner to designate different military units, with one set of pieces painted blue to represent the Prussians, and the other red to represent any foreign army. Many of these notations are still used today in some form by NATO, most notably this idea of blue four for a friendly force and op four for the opposing force. Which is probably where the phrase blue on blue comes from. It is where it comes from. Hey, I'm yeah. fucking smart. That's, a, that's what that pod looks like. Oh, that's actually looking very similar to what we see in... You see it in all sorts of military films of your generals pushing around blocks on a map. Yeah. Yeah. Or my favourite scene... That's just what Kriegspiel looks like. My favourite scene in Blackadder where he just, like, scrapes them into a dustpan. Exactly. Off the table. <laughs> yeah. That's what the uh, the other one looked like. That is fucking dreadful. The chess one. That is horrible. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So, um, the game also used dice, that very controversial innovation from years prior, now being used in a military setting, so... Helvig's whole thing of, no, the dice get rid of the tactical element. That buggered right off, didn't it? Yeah. The rules of Kriegspiel were based on data gathered by the Prussian army during the Napoleonic Wars, even providing tables on how far units can move based on their terrain, whether they were marching, running, or galloping, and the effective ranges of different munitions. Mm. So attacks were measured using a ruler, 
and they were determined using a number of dice to do, uh, you know to have a combat results and inflicted casualties with inflicted casualties actually being affected by the range of the attack in relation to the unit's accuracy. Unlike prior chess-based games, units in Kriegspiel could take partial losses before being eliminated, being potentially the first instance of tracking hit points in a game ever, alongside having rules governing morale and exhaustion for every single unit. Cool. This is getting more to what we're what used we know to. Today. Yeah. The weirdest part of Kriegspiel is that it required three players, two generals and an umpire, so the generals did not directly move their pieces. Rather, they wrote orders on pieces of paper that were then handed to the umpire. Who had a copy book of the Geneva Convention <laughs> and made sure what they do what they were doing was actually legal. Ah, Geneva Schmeneva. They wrote orders on pieces of paper that were then handed to the umpire, who then moved the pieces and rolled the dice depending on how they thought the troops would interpret the orders given. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Fog of War was simulated by having the umpire place pieces on the map only that both sides could see. He was keeping a private track of where the units were in his head or on a piece of paper or something. This is another example of how they wanted this game to be a more accurate depiction of real warfare. Because the orders didn't come directly from the general, they came from well, the a piece of paper. The orders did come from the general, but, you know, sort of the order to telephoned. The, the order to the men on the ground didn't come from the general. It came from, it came from Bob, who heard it from Steve, who heard it yeah, from... Yeah, messengers and relayers and Captain stuff like that. Captain Command, da 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 da, yeah. da. It's how the whole, your favourite thing of the Charge of the Light Brigade was sort of fucked up by that, wasn't it? Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, it's just a fun little bit of, of accuracy. It's a training tool there. Another instance of that is how, unlike in Helvig's game, Kriegspiel was open-ended, having no fixed objectives beyond those imposed by the umpire, based on what a real army would consider an objective on the map. Indeed, in true German fashion, the objective of the game was to teach tactics not to compete or have fun, as attested to by the game's own creator, who said, quote, the winning or losing does not come into it. So the Prussian king personally endorsed Kriegspiel, and by the end of the decade, every single German regiment had a Kriegspiel set. Over the years, new editions were released to better replicate the military manners of the times. Bork, bork. So uh, Kriegspiel did not stay in Germany forever. And uh, the catalyst for its proliferation throughout the wide world is an unlikely one. Guess what it was. The... I'll give you a hint, around 1870-ish. So loads of German things came over to England. One with George, George, George and George, and then the next with Victoria when she was shagging her cousin. That's when a lot of German things came over. And then after that, there was a huge link with England, Russia and Germany um, with, shit, hang on, King whatever and Tsar Nicholas. A good guess. What the fuck was that king? I can't remember. Edward. King Edward. Yeah. A good guess that it was something to do with the royal families, but not quite. Fuck! Um, you see, what happened in 1870 was the Franco-Prussian War. Oh, uh, yeah, that did happen, didn't it? Yeah, uh, where they bombed the shit out of Paris and took Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, so the Paul whole Lorraine. world... <laughs> yeah, Paul Lorraine. So the whole world was astounded that Prussia managed to be so successful, considering that they had no real advantage in weaponry, numbers, training or supply lines, and they were an invading force into a native country, which is always harder. Yes. Uh, the only thing that they noted that Prussia was doing that no other nation was is wargaming. So they're like, oh shit, these elite gamers are so good on the field. We've got to get that for ourselves. And these ladies and gentlemen is another example in history where gamers have been vilified. <laughs> the gamers have always been vilified. We've always been made the bad guys and it's sickening. Exactly. So uh, as a result of this, editions of Kriegspiel were released all over the world, both for military use and for recreational purposes. The British army were quick to the take, purchasing a translation of Kriegspiel in 1872, probably because they admired how Prussia beat the shit out of the French. Yep. Oxford University then had a Kriegspiel club the year after that, in 1873, and the Americans published several versions of Kriegspiel, with the US Navy mandating it as a form of instruction from the 1890s onwards. Hmm. So now we get into our specific neck of the woods, which is miniature wargaming. Yeah. Because obviously up until now it's all been those little lead bricks. Yeah, which you can't lick. Yeah. I mean, you can, it's not a good idea. A Scottish writer called Robert Louis Stevenson, or Robert Louis Stevenson? It's spelled like Louis, but it can be... Fuck it. Robert, Robert Stevenson. Robert L. Stevenson. <laughs> he became the first documented person to use toy soldiers for wargaming purposes in 1881. However, he never published his rules and only played his game on giant maps drawn in chalk on the floor. The whole thing was attested to by his son as being on par with the complexity of Kriegspiel, and in my mind, it's probably a descendant of that system that he just used toy soldiers for. It typically made out of tin, fun fact. Oh. Yet yeah, the first original miniatures war game, 
release I could find, came out in 1913 and was called Little Wars, a game described as, quote, a game for boys from 12 to 150, and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books. I like boys' games and audiobooks. And you're that more intelligent sort of girl. Bloody not, mate. (laughs) But that's the one that... That's the one that Peter Cushing, yeah. Grand Moff Tarkin. Exactly. There's, um... Highly recommend you look it up. There's a video from 1956. It's like a little two-minute video about Peter Cushing, the Grand Moff Tarkin from A New Hope, uh, just painting his little miniatures and then turning around with his miniatures, creating a game on the floor to himself and smoking a cigarette, which is the most sort of 1956 thing. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. So, such, such a nice granddad-looking guy. Yes. Anyway. So, Little Wars was very simplified compared to Kriegspiel, which made it fun and accessible for a large group of people. Weirdly, they no longer used dice, instead seemingly determining the winner of melee engagements, because there was no shooting attacks for infantry, only melee. By actually punching each other in the face. Pretty much, through a non-random series of size comparisons between the units. So basically, that one's bigger, it takes out this number of people. So, top trumps. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much top trumps. Uh, The best part of the rulebook is artillery. So artillery was decided by literally having a spring-loaded toy cannon fire corks across the board, and whichever toy soldiers it knocked over were deemed to be slain. Which is that so is good! amazing. So yeah, the game was also generously called a miniatures war game, because these traditional toy soldiers are pretty large, they're like bigger than my hand. He has pretty big hands. Yeah, say like... Is your hand? Maybe, they must have been like 8 to 10 inches tall. His hand is as big as my face. My hand is as big as her face. Which also doesn't mean much for people who have never seen either of us, but... <laughs> anyway, so yeah, these traditional toy soldiers were pretty large. The terrain being used, which was another innovation of Little Wars, it actually had 3D terrain. Uh, some of the houses were like knee height or higher for houses and trees. And the game was played in a garden or the floor of a large room. Measurements were made with a two-foot piece of string. Jesus Christ. Yes, it's pretty fucking big. So not really war miniatures, more like war mediums. Yeah, so whilst Little Wars was considered for the longest time to be the standard wargaming system for many, it was an incredibly niche part of an already niche hobby of collecting toy soldiers. It also soon died out in popularity because of a certain pesky pair of world wars, which rather deglamorized warfare, alongside, you know, causing a bunch of tin shortages, meaning that toy soldiers were no longer produced. Yeah. At least in as great a quality as they were. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, there were no dedicated magazines or clubs dedicated to miniature wargaming, leaving Little Wars a sort of relatively niche part of a relative niche bit of history. But the best part about Little Wars, which I've neglected to mention thus far, is that it was created by fucking H.G. Wells. Oh yeah, they did mention H.G. Wells, didn't they? Yep, H.G. Wells, the guy who did War of the Worlds, your famous you know, radio personality, satirist, writer. That H.G. Wells. It's, there's a hilarious drawing of him and his friends, all dressed like Victorian gentlemen, sitting on the floor, playing with toy soldiers in a really self-serious manner. I need to find this picture right now. It's so good. So I've got the picture here. It's titled... H.G. Wells, the English novelist, playing an indoor war game. That is one fucking amazing and two an excellent tash. Yeah, so they're all in suits. They've all got, you know, sort of very Victorian looking moustaches and and waistcoats and and beards and such. And they're all sat on the floor, meticulously measuring out little toy soldiers of of what looks like a fucking ballroom. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. There's like dollhouses everywhere you're being used as terrain. It's... I love that picture so much. Anyways, wargaming kind of languished until the 50s for obvious reasons, although the British Wargaming Society was formed in 1935 and it had Grand Moff Tarkin as a member. Peter Cushing had, I think they said around 5,000 miniatures in his collection, which is incredible. Uh, It took until 1955 for a man named Jack Scrooby. Uh, Yeah, he sort of took it upon himself to unite the scattered few groups across the US and the UK interested in this very niche hobby. So he created his own metal miniatures he created a wargaming magazine that had 200 subscribers. Oh. I know. And he hosted his own wargaming conventions, the first of which attracted 14 people. Nice. Good for him. But that's enough for seven games. Yeah, good for him. That's a pretty good, what we'd call a ham slam. Yeah. He also helped foster an international community of wargamers who shared battle reports, rule sets, and hobby tips with like-minded fellows. At the same time in the UK, Donald Featherstone began writing a series of wargaming books which represented the first mainstream attention the hobby had received since H.G. Wells' Little Wars. Whilst the miniatures business had never really gone away, and it was now producing everything from Napoleonics to middle-aged warriors to armoured convoys from the not-too-distant World Wars, this was the first time that rules had been published specifically with the intent of using all of these 
figures. Mm. Uh, Featherstone's publications inspired countless further rule sets to be published, and the resurgent miniatures industry guaranteed a boom in popularity from beginning in the 50s, but mainly the 60s and 70s. After the publication of the first medieval wargame in 1958, medieval wargaming only grew more and more popular, eventually leading to the publication of Chainmail in 1971, a system all but forgotten <laughs> nowadays, eventually sort of medieval stuff, and that became a lot more popular than historicals. Yeah. Which is why in the sort of 60s and 70s and early 80s, it's sort of fantasy and sci-fi stuff started getting more popular, especially with a certain Games Workshop being opened and releasing Warhammer in 1983 and sort of dominating the industry from there on. Yep. Yeah, it was Warhammer in 83. They were the first people to create specific miniatures for their specific games instead of being, you know, just generic. system agnostic. Yeah. And this turned out very, very profitable <laughs> for them, which is why they're on top nowadays. So that James workshop, he really knew what he was doing. Anyway, finally, my last little segment, I want to talk about probably my favourite brand of board game, if you can call it that, the tabletop role-playing game, or TTRPG. TTRPG. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to make a titty joke. Yeah. So everyone nowadays is at least somewhat familiar with Dungeons & Dragons, thanks to its depiction in Stranger Things. Even and though they call the bad things <clears throat> the wrong thing, because yes, not, not a demogorgon is not a fucking demogorgon. No. But also the astounding popularity of its fifth edition as a result of that. So this begs the question, what is the first ever role-playing game? Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping there'd be some other wacky shit, but no, it was D&D. So nobody has seemingly thought of a role-playing game where players control a single character that has its own goals and abilities and items until 1971. But the first edition of D&D was published in 1974. So why do I say 1971? Why do you say 1971? The reason I mentioned that the more modern history of wargaming from the 50s onwards, instead of just Kriegspiel and that, was that um, as the hobby grew more popular, it spawned more deviations from the norm of replicating real warfare. So, like I said, medieval battles were replicated, which was exciting because it wasn't just modern stuff or Napoleonics. Then they started to add fantastical elements, thanks in large part to the influence of Tolkien. That's why all fatty the fucking same everywhere you go. Jolkian, Rolkian, Rolkian, Tolkien. Jolkian, Rolkian, Rolkian, Tolkien, exactly. This is the very same. Uh, the best instance of this comes with the creation of Chainmail in 1971, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Chainmail's just another Middle Ages war game. It was far from the first. It then had supplemental material, which included rules on magical abilities and monsters. And even then, it was far from the first fantasy war game. Yeah. However, the creators of Chainmail, Jeff Perrin and a certain Gary Gygax, the Gary Gygax, I want to get my dice blessed at his, his grave. They were likely inspired by a wargaming experiment run by the University of Minnesota in 1969. Uh, this experiment focused on single-character wargames. It was called Braunstein. It was set in a sort of Napoleonic war village. It had all participants take the role of a single soldier in a life-size Napoleonic wargame. So really, it's not a role-playing game as much as it is a live-action roleplay. And LARP. a team. Yeah, it's more a LARP thing than a RPG. Yeah. But still... The moderator of uh, Brownstein, Dave Wesley, had his own games, which were known to Perrin and Gygax, as they used a mixture of their chainmail system and one of Wesley's games in the world's first role-playing game. Gygax and Perrin had a friend named Dave Arneson, who was a participant in the Brownsteins. He used this idea of single-character wargaming and married that with um, the hybrid chainmail system to run a game with and for Perrin and Gygax, set in his own fictional universe of Blackmoor. So this game featured hit points, Featured experience points, character levels, armor classes, dungeon crawling, sort of all the standard features of a general RPG, especially D&D. But it wasn't quite D&D yet. It was about B&B &B at this point. It was beds and breakfast, exactly. They all loved this game. They'd meet up frequently to keep playing it. They played it so much that Gary Gygax's wife believed him to be having an affair, and uh, eventually she busted down the door on their dimly lit basement to find Gygax not banging another woman, but rather rolling dice with miniatures and maps and silly voices with his friends, which is <laughs> a really appropriate metaphor for the average D&D. And they stayed together, though. Yes, they did. Yay! At least I think they did. I hope they did. Don't quote me on that. Don't, don't go onto Daddy's <clears throat> laptop. He doesn't like it. No. See ya. So um, Gygax and Arneson then went on to developing Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> as a full game. Daddy will pay attention yes. to you in a sec. Just call him Mama. So Gygax and Arneson went on to develop Dungeons & Dragons as his own game, you know, sort of from this... From hybrid wargame system. Yeah. Uh, they pitched it to the publishers of their Chainmail game in 1973, who rejected it because they didn't get it. Dicks. They didn't get the appeal of it. 
Dicks. So they founded their own company and published it in 1974. <laughs> I love it when people do that. It's like, ah, oh, fuck you, I'm exactly. going to publish anyway. There were potentially other games that could bear the title of first ever RPG, including one that I will talk about in a future episode. For the most part, these other games didn't really have all the features of RPGs as we think of them nowadays. There was a board game called Diplomacy, where players took the role of individual characters interacting with one another. But not how I called it a board game. It's because it's more of a board game with role-playing elements. Okay, that's fair. So there was a bit of role-playing as in, I'm the ambassador of Belgium, I want this bit. Well, I'm the ambassador of France, and I don't want you to have that. Is I assume what the gameplay was. Yes, I assume so. It's called Diplomacy, what else could it be? Uh, there's about also getting a, game... a diploma, it's about living life as a university student, so you're just <laughs> depressed from poor for three years. That sounds like one of those things where it's like, you know, in the Pokemon universe, they have a game where they just look at majestic animals. Yeah. Or like um, in the Dungeons and Dragons universe, there's um, officers and bosses. <laughs> anyway, there's also a game called Gloratha, which was published soon after D&D, but the role-playing elements were inspired by D&D and were additions to the creator's original board gaming vision. Aside from these, and a couple of assassin-style games or improv theatre groups from the 20s and 60s, D&D truly is the first RPG ever made. Apparently the company that rejected D&D in 1973 tried to jump on the bandwagon, releasing a game called Tunnels and Trolls in 1974. But there's a reason you haven't heard of Tunnels and Trolls. I kind of want a, po- a copy of it now. Kind of, I kind of want to look at... I'd love to compare the original Dungeons and & Dragons and Tunnels and Trolls. That would be yeah, fun. Yeah, I think that would be quite fun, actually. Yeah. I don't want to play original D&D, because it's, by all accounts, a fucking state. <laughs> second edition, I'd have a look at. Yeah. It's like I wouldn't look at Rogue Trader of 40k. No. I'd look at second edition if yeah. I was going to go retro. Yeah, there we have it. That's um, a big history of the oldest board games, which relates to the history of the oldest war games, because obviously the royal game of Ur became Batgammon, became chess, became Kriegspiel. Mm. And then obviously war gamings originally started as a historical thing, which went to a medieval thing, which went to a fantasy thing, which went to D&D. So it's all linked, this, this sort of 5,000 year history of gaming. Hang on, um, so I can make this joke. What was the first name of the first game? Sabat. Senate. Senate. Yeah, Sabat is Star Wars. I am the Senate. Okay, ready? Yeah. It's all Senate. Always Always has has been. been. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. It's all the royal game of Ur. Always has been. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it's, as I mentioned at the start, people have always loved silly games. We've always loved recreation. And as time went on, we love making these games just more and more ludicrously complicated. It's sort of a, I think it's a nice metaphor for the sort of human experience as a whole. You know, as time went on and life grew more and more complex, so too did our forms of escapism. And yet we've never been without a desire for, for games, for having fun with pointless little tools, even in the face of everything that might have been going on in the world. And it's sort of a unifying thread throughout all of history that really isn't talked about enough. And I think it's just really cool. It is really cool. And I think that was a really nice... Hi, at the Boom, end. I got a message in at the end. You did. I'm, I won't. So you can probably tell from the fact that this month is almost over and we've only just released the episode that we still don't get paid for this. So instead of plugging any generic advertiser, I'll simply plug a friend of the show, RudeDudeCast. He streams on Twitch, he shoutcasts here and there, he's a lovely guy. You can find him on Twitch at twitch.tv slash RudeDudeCasts. Anyways, back to the show. Are you ready to get wild? I'm ready to get wild. More specifically, Jonathan Wild. Oh, fuck off! It's, <laughs> it's, I love you. I love you too. So, Jonathan Wild. Who the fuck is he? Nobody knows, but they do. They don't really know when he was born, though. Oh, that's um, a good start. He's kind of like William Wallace in that they debate the year, but he was born... A lot of historical figures, yeah. Yeah. He was born in Wolverhampton in either 1682 or 83. That's not too bad. It's not like yeah. anywhere between three some decades. Say, yeah, some say, some say born 1272, some say 1263. But even him being born in Wolverhampton is debated, as some say he was born near Shropshire. I don't actually know if that is near, because I don't fucking know where anywhere is. I don't know where either are either. No. I know Shropshire used to be spelt with C's. Uh, yeah, and he was the eldest of five. He was baptised at St. Peter's Collegiate Church. His father was a carpenter and his mother sold herbs and fruits at the market. He attended free school and was apprenticed to a local buckle maker at the age of 15 and spent seven years learning the trade. Married, had a son, but became restless and fucked off. 
He's now beginning to live up to the uh, the wild surname. He's living up to the wild side now. He's fucked off. Absolute and... wild child. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Gotta find he... out where the wild things are. God fucking... <laughs> He's fucked off and moved to London. Oh, I thought he moved into the wilderness. God fucking damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in 1704, as a servant, but some reports say he worked in his trade of buckle-making at this time, he was dismissed by his master, left London, and then returned in 1708. To his wife? No, to London. Oh. Um, he didn't go back to his wife and he, child, he just, ever. Fair enough. He just left. Um, he was arrested for debt in March of 1710 and sent to Wood Street Compter, which is a debt prison. Awesome. Prison, as to be expected, was extremely corrupt. Oh, yeah. With, and here's a word that I said I was going to learn how to pronounce and didn't, G-A-O-L-E-R-S. Jailers. Oh, is it literally just jailers? Yeah, the old word for jail was G-A-O-L. Oh. Um, so prison was extremely corrupt with jailers demanding bribes for anything. Literally, you want hot water. Yeah. You want... You've got to bribe them. Yeah, you want a pillow. Which you're in debtors prison, so good luck getting the stuff to bribe people. Yep. Wilde became extremely popular by running errands for the jailers and earning enough to repay his original debts, the cost of imprisonment, and, like, on top of that, enough to loan to other prisoners. So oh. he was fucking rolling in it. I thought he just whiled away his time doing something pointless. God fucking damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was allowed the liberty of the gate, which meant he could go out at night and help arrest thieves. Which oh. is a very weird... That sounds like a bad idea. It really was. Here he met Mary Milliner, a prostitute who taught him just basically the criminal underworld of London. Yeah. She brought him into her gang and he was introduced to a lot of Londoners who were criminals. He was released from prison in 1712. I think Mary was arrested for a bit and released at the same time. Yeah. Thanks to an act of parliament passed earlier that year. Once out, he lived with Mary as her husband, even though both of them were already married. He was her muscle when she was working and became thoroughly involved in the criminal world. They ran a scheme where Mary would pick out a mark, bring him to a secluded area, you know, with her wiles, yes. and then she'd set her wilds on him. <laughs> yeah. nice, uh, nice so one. she'd bring the guy to a secluded area and then Wilde would rob him. Yeah. Which led to Wilde making enough money to buy an inn called the King's Head with Mary managing, in the thing I was reading, it was called a stable for prostitutes, so I'm guessing it's their bed, their lodgings. A stable? I'm guessing it just meant their lodgings, not where they'd like actually Probably, go. Probably, yeah. Um, on the upper floors. At some point, Mary became a madame to the other ladies of the night, and Wilde was a fence. Yeah. Uh, he began to dispose of stolen goods and pay bribes to get people out of prison, what a fence does. Um, later, he parted with Mary, not so amicably, um, oh, as when Mary parted with Wilde, she also parted with part of her ear oh. to mark her as a prostitute, which he cut off with a sword. Is is that what they did back then? Apparently so. That's a fun fact. Isn't it just? Um, in 1713, Wilde was approached by the ex-city's undermarshal, Charles Hitchin, to become his assistant in thief-taking, arresting thieves. Uh, hey, guy who... um. Previously arrested thieves, though. That's all he knows, is that he previously yes. arrested thieves at the game. He was in debtor's prison, was temporarily signed on to arrest thieves. In doing so, met a bunch of thieves, became a thief. Well, he doesn't, know he, he doesn't know he became yeah. a thief, though. And he doesn't know about his fencing. Or does he? Uh, I mean, to be honest, Hitchin probably did. Because the reason why he was the ex-cities under Marshall is because he was a corrupt little bastard. Of course he was. Uh, but yeah, so he was a corrupt little fucker. Wilde may have become one of Hitchens' mathematicians uh, during his stay in prison. I can't remember what that meant, but it wasn't maths. If not him, then somebody who was one of Hitchens' mathematicians did end up working for Wilde later. Right. At the end of the war in 1714, some war was happening. There was a war that was affecting England, ended in 1714. Crime rates increased. No surprise, because you have a lot of soldiers coming home, no longer have a home. Thank you. Yeah. crime. Um, during that time as well, Wilde and Hitchin split, with Hitchin getting his job back, and Wilde opening his own office in the Blue Boar Tavern, run by Mrs. Seagull. Wilde called himself Hitchin's deputy, which was not official in the slightest. Um, he definitely was not, and began carrying a sword. So why not? Fair enough. Um, Wilde's way of making money was to send out thieves from his gang to steal shit, wait for the theft to be announced, and then say that his thief-taking agents 
had found the merchandise and return it for a reward. That is, that is one of, that's like a fucking Dennis the Menace plot. Yeah. And he did this for a really, really long time. If the item was valuable enough for blackmail, he'd do that instead. Things were just easier back in the day, you know what I mean? Yeah. He would also, especially as well, because during this time there wasn't like a London police force. It was a police for kind of each borough. Yeah, it was, um, it was the, the Reeves and stuff. Yeah, so it wasn't like police police. He would also help, um, which I've written in Air Bunnies, the police find thieves. And basically what he would do is he would either send rivals from other gangs or um, it's not reported, but there were, he would sometimes threaten to send members of his own gang. Mm. Um, who weren't happy with him taking the majority of the winnings um, and he just fucking sent him off to prison. Awesome. This method also allowed him to avoid arrest. He never pretended that the items weren't stolen. He'd say that he found them and he actually said that he hated stealing and he would also use the threat of penalty for thieves to keep his men in line. Whilst Wilde was running his organisation as a criminal thief taker, Hitchin was running his own from his post so he was still... He got his role back, but was still just as corrupt, which basically resulted in Wilde and Hitchens just turning into rivals. And then Wilde, as a result of this, started turning in Hitchens thieves. There was a little, there was basically a gang war to try and get rid of the, get rid of each other. In 1718, because of Hitchens' position, he tried, he kind of tried to use his authority. Um, and he released a manuscript naming Wilde as a crime boss and, you know, basically saying he's a shithead. He does this, this and this. So Wilde went nuclear. And said, yes, but I fucking worked for you. He outed him. Yeah. As gay. Oh! That's nuclear. And Hitchin tried to do another manuscript, but because of what Wilde had done, he was fucked. Yeah, that's that's an, that's an oofty in 1720. Yeah. yeah, that is the nuclear option. So Hitchin's gone, and Wilde held the majority of the crime world just under his thumb. And legends began to crop up about him, one being that he kept the details of his thieves and when they were no longer when they were no longer needed, he'd send them to the gallows. Which is pretty accurate. Probably, yeah. And um, this also led to a folk etymology of double cross, where if a thief had two crosses next to their name for crossing wild in some way more than once, they'd be sent to the gallows. However, I'm referring to it as a folk etymology because apparently the phrase wasn't really in usage until eighteen thirty four. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of those. Yeah. And according to people, just the general public, he was a hero. He was like a vigilante. Called himself the Thief Taker General of Great Britain and Ireland and testified that he had brought 60 thieves to the gallows. That's quite the grand title for a guy operating out of a borough of London. Isn't it? But he basically said how he had caught so many thieves. He was taking thieves off the street. He was a hero. And he never really mentioned that he was finding these stolen goods and giving them back for a price. Yeah. His office was extraordinarily busy, and quite often people would come in, report that an item had been stolen, and he would go, Oh, actually, I found it already. Isn't that hunky-dory? It's in my cupboard. He would offer, he would then basically go, Oh, actually, now that you mention that, that just came in this morning. For an extra fee, I'll find the thieves. Mm. And he would do something like that. In fact, he was so he was so revered for this that in 1720, the Privy Council asked for his advice on controlling crime. Um, and he went, "Fuck knows, mate." No, he 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 suggested the best way to control crime was to increase the reward for evidence against thieves, and that happened, increasing from forty pound in the in that time yeah. to one hundred and forty, which is a shit ton, Dodgy which is a, a hefty pay rise for him, isn't it? That's like when billionaires say that the best way to help society is tax cuts for the rich. Yep. <laughs> that, oh, that's, this guy had it figured out. He really fucking did. I'm fucking jealous. Wild's Battle Against Thieves were published in the papers. Typically, he approached them. Again, just spreading the idea that he was a hero. A story was published of him capturing 21 members of the Carrick gang, which, you know, everybody thought was absolutely amazing. He's taking this gang off the streets, but it was actually just hidden warfare because he was eliminating the competition another thing that there's evidence of but i haven't got it on me because i don't um he would blackmail people blatantly in the papers there is an advert where this book has been found in a certain location the information in the book was signatures and quite important it was a quite well-to-do book 
And basically what the advert says is, Oi, we found this book near a brothel, you filthy bastard. Come here and give me money or I'm going to out the information that's in the book because I know whose it is and I know how important this book is. That's basically what the advert says because yeah. it says a guinea. That's what he says in it. It's basically a guinea will shut me up and I will give you your book back. But if you don't... I was going to say, I'd imagine it would be more tactfully written, just like, a, oh, if you don't come here and you know give me a reward for finding it, I'll just have to put your name out to remind you who you are. Yeah, it's basically um, because the location, he didn't like out it, but it was like, no, it was known to be a brothel. Yeah. So yeah, and then we are now reaching the decline. Oh no. After 10 years of being at the top, Wilde's empire began to crumble. A few between Wilde and Jack Shepard, um, he's a guy who ran another gang, and Wilde got him arrested, and then got him arrested again when he yep. escaped. So that was quite a huge thing during that time, because Wilde was, that Shepard was ahead of another gang, and then he became kind of like the working man's hero, fighting the establishment. Um, fighting the establishment that is this other crime boss? Yeah. Amazing. But so between that feud and Wilde betraying a highwayman named Joseph Blake, and that story was Blake went up to Wilde and said, hey, these are some other criminals. And Wilde was like, oh, thank you. You're a criminal too. <laughs> Dickhead. And arrested him. So those two team up and are now after Wilde. They were seen as heroes fighting against Wilde's criminal regime. Because at this point he was just a crime boss. Yeah. Wilde sought to get rid of them, getting Shepard's wife drunk to find out where he was and arrest him. Shepherd was sentenced to death. It's also corrected to suntanned, which is lovely. He was suntanned to <laughs> They death. left him out on the beach. Now, um, Shepherd was sentenced to death, but he escaped again. That's <laughs> uh, that simple. Um, Blake was also arrested for some time, and at the trial, Wilde put forward false evidence, which was such bullshit and so false that Blake was that mad that he knifed him. Uh, oh! He went to, so a knife he was probably going to use to escape, he was like, you know what, fuck this, I'm knifing the bastard, and slit his throat, but he actually survived it. That's like his Joker moment. Wild Joker moment. Yeah. He's getting his throat slit. Yeah. Um, but, so even though Wild survived it, this event led to the recaptured Shepherd escaping for a fourth time. Fuck's sake, this guy! So this whole mess basically just kind of made people lose a bit of respect for Wild, and his grip started to loosen on his empire. Yeah. Another event that fucked him over, and this one like really fucked him after this, was one of his other things that he had was a boat, where if stolen goods weren't returned, he would sell them to Holland, send them off. Right, If I he see. couldn't return them. This boat, however, was run by thieves. And what do thieves do? They nick stuff. They nick shit. And when five pieces of lace went missing, the captain, called Roger Johnson, took the fee from the first mate. First mate was pissed off. So he informed the police about the entire operation, and the entire operation got absolutely fucked. And destroyed. Oh dear, and did they trace that to Wild? No. Oh good. But Johnson got arrested. Yeah. Because his main income of money disappeared, so he got into a feud with his landlord about paying his rent, which then put Wilde under pressure because he thought if Johnson got arrested, Johnson will just blow the top off the entire thing. Yeah. So Wilde started a riot to help Johnson escape, much like the one that helped Shepard escape. Right. However, witnesses saw him start it and they testified that he started oh, it. Oh, you're getting sloppy, pal. Yep. It resulted in him getting arrested and charged with a metric shit ton of charges, blackmail, receiving stolen goods, causing arrest with false evidence, and the theft of the regalia of the Knights of the Garter. Wow, that's quite I, a bit. I didn't even Google that, but that sounds pretty important. And we found guilty. So now he's in prison and he tried to kill himself the night before by ODing on Laudanum. Yeah, Lord. So he tried to OD on Laudanum. Yeah, uh, but it only made him sick. Um, on the 24th of May, 1725, the day of his hanging, he was already in a really bad state because he'd been quite sick. Before. Yeah, because he almost OD'd on Laudanum. It's made even worse because apparently on the way to the to the gallows is pubs. Right. To let you have one last drink. So he was also plastered. A crowd reported as the largest of the time by a man called Daniel Defoe formed to see the hanging and hopefully to see a show, but were left a bit disappointed because the hangman allowed for Wilde to compose himself. 
the hangman was his mate and went to one of his many weddings because apparently he just married a fucking god knows how many women. Oh, like, just, like, just yeah. in between. Hey, how are you, love? You having a nice day? Let's get married. Lovely. I suppose when your source of income is getting other people to steal stuff for you and then selling it back to people, you've got a lot of spare time. Yeah. So they did that and he got hanged. And then he got buried at St. Pancras Old Church next to one of his wives. Ah, oh, lovely. Uh, true love. That's, that's the end. But it's not! He was dug up three days later and dissected because he was a criminal. Returned to life. He was Frankensteined. <laughs> Weekend at Bernie. Um, <laughs> Weekend at Bernie. Because... By the two people that were trying to take him out. Yeah! <laughs> no, because he They're was like, a criminal. Oh man, all of the stuff that he stole from us is locked up in his in his warehouse. How are we going to get in? I've got a plan. <laughs> and the Weekend at Bernie's away is like, Hi, I'm the boss. Please let me Please in. Please let me in with oh, my oh. good friends here. Oh boy. <laughs> Fucking Christ. <laughs> But he was dug up three days later and dissected because he was a criminal and anatomists had dibs on corpses. Absolutely. And once dissected, his skeleton was put on display. After death, he was used as a way to attack the Whig politician Robert Walpole, with a famous example being the Beggar's Opera, telling the story of Peacham and McKeith, two criminals based on Wilde and Shepherd. The story was a satirical take on political policies, showing them to be as self-serving as criminals still are. Yep. They are still self-serving assholes. Fuck politics. It's been a stereotype for literally hundreds of years for a reason. Yeah. Another famous example is in Sherlock Holmes, where Moriarty is referred to as a successor of Wilde. Oh. Then there's no other mention of him. Oh. He's pretty much been forgotten. But you can still see his skeleton at the Hunterian Museum in London. So he's still around to this day. He's little corpse. So now, a little crime lord of London is stood smiling for everybody to see. Oh, what a lovely smile. Isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if you had to pay to go see a skeleton? Yeah. (laughs) So you're still ripping people off. Still ripping people off. But yeah, so that is John Wilde. The wild story of John Wilde. And quite a short one, but that is because mine are usually shorter because I'm a faster talker and also a sort of researcher. And there we have it, our 10th episode. We didn't do any sort of celebration this time, because, uh, well, we did a birthday episode last month, and we were just tired, to be honest. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. Please follow the podcast, rate us where possible, and follow our Instagram, which is at tell underscore don't underscore show. If you have anything you want us to talk about, please email us at podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for listening, and see you next time.